A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Jay Sen, data platforms and domain expert slash builder and OSS committer. And while Jay works at PayPal, he was only representing his own views, except for when he explicitly said uh, otherwise. So what are some key takeaways and thoughts from kind of Jay's point of view uh, from the conversation? Number one, when you get to a certain scale, any central team should focus on, as Jay said, empower people. Don't try to do their jobs. That's how you build towards scale and maintain flexibility. Your centralized team likely won't become a bottleneck if they aren't making decisions on behalf of other teams. Number two, to actually empower other teams, dig into the actual business need and work backwards to a solution that can solve that. If there is a solution already in place that isn't working anymore, look to find ways to augment that rather than trying to replace or reinvent the wheel. Number three, self-service is a slippery slope. It often solves immediate problem of time to market, but also creates next level challenges. A big issue is that when you remove friction to data access, you are throwing the challenge of finding the right data on consumers' plates. Number four, data contracts are great when everybody aligns on them and there are enough tools to support them. But they also create proliferation of data to enforce the contracts required by multiple consumers. They often don't survive the real world. If there are multiple different consumers of the contract, 
it can be that you either have to create contracts with each of them or, or it's challenging. Number five, the data catalog space is finally getting some needed attention, but there are still a myriad of issues that need solving when thinking about the data catalog space. Will those be solved by technology or by leveraging something like a data concierge? It remains to be seen. Whether Again, whether this is people or process and technology or you know what, what's going to be the, the thing that really helps us address a lot of these different issues. I think it'll kind of start to split itself out um, and that some will focus more on the technology and some will be more uh, addressed by the people side. Number six, and finally, it's insanely easy to overspend in the cloud. Everyone is vaguely aware, but cost should be part of every important discussion. You can drive business value, but it absolutely must be focused on the cost as return on investment is far more important than simply a return. So I think you'll learn a lot from this interesting discussion. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Jay Sen here, who is a data product domain expert and you know data product builder as well, OSS committer. Uh, he does work for PayPal, but want to be very specific that today he is representing you know his own viewpoints based on his you know extensive experience within kind of the data space and data infrastructure space. So, what we're going to be talking about today is is just a whole lot of things around what might be termed in the the data quality space, but kind of the lineage, catalog, quality, classification, all these um, challenges and and some stuff that that Jay and the team have really, um, I think, nailed, that they've really figured out how to do a lot of their orchestration pieces and things like that. So um, kind of their journey with data thus far on how you would do, whether you want to call it doing exactly data mesh or not. I don't really care. I don't think anybody does at the end of the day. Um, but I think there's a lot of really, really interesting things that we're going to be able to, to touch on, especially for somebody who's working at a company where data is obviously so important at you know a, a financial services type company. Um, and that we'll be able to kind of uh, bounce around how you can actually do that at scale and what what are the real challenges versus the uh, kind of theoretical things <laughs> that might be awesome on paper. So with Jay, that is the background. If you don't mind, could you give people an introduction to yourself and a little bit about your background, and then we can kind of jump into the topics at hand. Sure. Thanks, Scott, actually. First of all, thanks for reminding me and super happy to be here. Uh, I go by Jay, um, and you know I uh, that's my open source handle, by the way, um, and that's my outside public identity. Um, I currently work at PayPal, uh, but you know I've been working in the data space for 
since 2012, uh, really deeply on the data side. Uh, so it's been a decade now. Uh, worked on various uh, you know aspects and and uh, different areas and domains of data so far. Um, and as you mentioned, we are working on uh, you know all these uh, data products um, um, and that facilitates the data products uh, services that you know. I would say we haven't really nailed it yet, but we are. Uh, I believe we are way on, uh, very well on our journey to, you know, solve some of the top challenges on PayPal side, and you know, in general outside. Yeah, I think that's really great, and I, and I like the word facilitation, right? Because so many times people are focused on the technology. And, you know, you and I are both, you know, technology people, to, you know, you're obviously an open source committer, so you love technology, but it has to have a purpose. It has to facilitate the data products and the value. So I, I love that you said that in there. I think that's an important point. Um, if, if you could t- take us through a little bit about your journey so far with learning how to, to really treat data as a product and that like what what you think have been some some really good learnings that other people could take so they might not have to uh, do all the, all the work themselves um, and kind of where, where there are still a lot of questions in the market. You know, I, I, I can I can probably give, start with some some background. So my first job, I remember my my team name was Central Services. So everything that is common across con- company is something we used to do. And, you know, for it was a startup uh, and, you know, uh, for a startup and uh, with the people less than 500 or, you know, two, three, a couple of hundred, um, it was fine to create services that, uh, you know, the rest of the company uses. But as it grows, it becomes really challenging. So we, uh, you know, I think what I've seen is that we have to shift the gears into now empowering people rather than doing their job. And I think this is where the data mesh is going as well. It's kind of an advanced level of the thinking, the same that we want to empower people to do their job and, and you know take care of their business needs rather than doing it for them. Yeah, I think that's a really, I haven't heard anybody phrase it quite that like in such a pithy way, right? Like of just like that that phrase of, empower people don't do their jobs. I think that's like such a good way of phrasing the way that you can get to scale, right? When people are so, you know, do we have to decentralize all the things? Do we have to do all that? Think about that as the business value driver and and kind of the buy-in driver for, for folks, right? <laughs> so um, so on that that journey to kind of empower people, where, like, where did you start or, or where, where did you start to see that um, you're figuring out how to empower people? Like what, what is it that you start from the technology side or are you starting from the organizational side? How, how do you really work towards that, that empowerment? I, yeah, I think there are two, two ways. Um, so ideal way is you basically to understand the business, how they run it and what are their um, you know, typical day-to-day activity and operations and needs looks like. Um, but it's also you, you, you as a, either sometimes the business has their technology arm as well. So you either interface with technology arm 
in the bigger corporations, but in the smaller companies, you directly face with the business. And then you have that luxury and an opportunity to understand that business and convert that into a technical solution. So you you do uh, we do it that way. Uh, but there is also another angle, which is that a uh, lot of times the solutions that works for business are already there. So it starts with understanding what that current solution is there, whether it's a legacy or whether it is it has become a legacy. And it was sold in, in like 2010, 2000 years and like, you know, in, in old times. And then it was suitable at that time. And now with all the new changes in the technologies, we could have we could have done it better way if we if we do it today, right? Or if we solve it today. So that is one way of looking at how we can, you know, solve the same problems in a better way. And and often this is this is, I think, as as we say it, right? The brownfield versus greenfield projects, where you have a project uh, uh, solution already there, you are talking about improving by 10, 20%. And that's huge if we are talking about millions and billions of dollars of business, right? So there is often a lot of time the focus is on these brownfield projects where you are bringing new technologies, new way of solving things, ultimately showing uh, what metrics you could improve upon. So a lot of the projects I've, I've worked on in my my own uh, you know career is is like that. And you are actually uh, you know lucky if you get to work on the Greenfield project where you are starting everything entirely like you know a new project in IntelliJ or I, sorry I mean in any IDE, right it is not something in a uh, it's like a milestone or an activity to uh, record actually so you don't you don't do that uh, every day or every year um so yeah both ways um and depends on the goal uh, what you want to improve upon right very much so and and i liked how much of what you said about technology in there which was very little about yeah i think if you remember we in the early days we we uh, as as a as a i wouldn't say junior but you know general software engineer we always try to pick a language, right? Like I was myself like a C++ guy. I would say no to any other language. I was like that, right? Um, because I used to believe that that's the most performant language you can have on earth, right? And and then as you, as you start working in the industry, you realize that every language has its own use. So then you, you kind of focus on the category. Now, if you want to, today, if you want to like work on the distributed systems, you can't avoid Java, right? If you want to work on the embedded systems, you can't avoid C, C++. And if you want to work on automation, there is a whole bunch of languages like Python and Go, like data sciences, you know, you can't avoid Python. So it, the language itself has its use, and then the framework, it has its, has its own use. But, you know, I, I've, I felt that, and what I've experienced is that the framework changes very often, often, like in, in like two, three year time frame period, um, the framework goes and then new framework comes in. But the conceptual thing about this, the technical solution doesn't change. So, you know, we better focus on, on solving the algorithmic way of solving the algorithm of that solution uh, that solves the business problem than the technology itself. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially 
how you can think you you have to evolve and you have to stay on top of new things um because you know the these new ways of working are maybe more efficient and you don't have to find the best way every single time but what's right. the best way for the organization and and things um so you know i w- i want to circle back on what you talked about about facilitation so in the data mesh and just kind of in general with data products a lot on the infrastructure side of of facilitation has been either serving one um or the other of producers or consumers right that you're really only focused on one or the other or maybe you're communicating between the two um you know this is where the central data team becomes a bottleneck where you know your central services right exactly what you said where you worked um like how have you started to move towards thinking about being that facilitator through technology and you know you have the the communication up front but that you facilitate it so that you don't even have to be the facilitators in the one to one conversations on a regular basis yeah you know this is this is an uh really interesting topic because i i think in order to advance ourselves into the data mesh terminologies and and that those technical stack this is a single the most i feel the the challenging area that we would have to solve in order to have the data mesh successful <clears throat> meaning that you 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 cannot be biased towards one party and in this actually there is not only two party of producer and consumer there are actually multiple producers and often less than consumers but then typically less uh, but many can be possible right that many producers but then many many consumers and then um outside of that producer and consumer there are also administrators there are also governance uh, governance uh people on top of it um and operations all of those are important s- stakeholders into that that one entity that that is you know uh, surrounded by all these uh, different personas so uh, um how we have um, tried to provide the uh, you know consideration for all these is uh, you know i would say we are i I've, i haven't seen a complete solution yet but i think we are um as an industry we are trying to solve that part right um typically uh, it used to be focused on producer and i think consumer was left to do it its own job themselves right like if you look at the whole um um idea about uh, the etl and then how it became elt and then you know the t was left for the consumer to do whichever way they want that that part is again now introducing back the challenges in the transformations that the consumer are doing so then it is putting again some responsibility back to producers so i think that is how we are going to the data mesh where uh producers are responsible now some of these responsibilities are getting shifted towards producer as well to in order to provide the you know the standard way of accessing data or accessing data products uh, or apis Uh, things like that so yeah we we haven't i haven't seen anybody has solved that problem but i think we are in the journey and this is something is going to be challenging because 
if you if you remember the whole idea around self-serviceness, right? Um, a very basic service of let's say data movement. And if you think about a self-serviced way of doing the data movement, um, I think it hasn't been solved by itself. Like there is, I mean, as a, as in a regular, um, if you think of, of this as a as an outside industry or out, outside enterprises, yeah, there is a way where we can we can choose certain data table on left side and then say move it to the right side. That's all doable. But when you when you try to map that and implement that on on the and the enterprise scale company, it's just not does not work. There is so many considerations of capacity, whether you are allowed to do that or not, whether you have access to that or not, which data stores are allowed, which are not. The amount of like self-serviceness basically actually creates a problem where then there will be too many data duplications and there is a cost associated with everything. So it's 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 not it, you know it went outside of the bucket of solution. It became a problem. So so I think we we need to rethink about this in in the new era of data mesh, and and create a service that can facilitate uh, the implementation of data mesh. I I think um, I can't remember exactly who said it. I think it was Marius Inger who was talking about that self-service, or, or no, it was East Oldfield. And he was talking about like self-service is actually not good because it is typically only making it so that somebody is able to do something, not capable to do something. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so that capability mean is, is like that intentionality and that this is the right thing. And so exactly what you're talking about of, oh, if I'm, you know, self-service production, and I'm not thinking about it as an actual product. I'm not having those conversations with consumers. If I'm just producing all this stuff because I think, well, this might be kind of interesting, it, it just makes it so that it's impossible to find anything, right? It makes it so that it's it's so difficult to actually know what it is you're consuming and what should you be consuming from and why and what it means and all of that. So you, you have to have that intentionality around we need to make it so that it is easy when people should be producing to to produce, but not make it so that people are just like, I can produce whatever I want and I should produce whatever I feel like. And that, you know, that's where you get those kind of data assets that aren't being managed, right? That That are these artifacts that are out there that people rely on. And there's no upstream owner. There's nobody who's taking care of it. Nobody's focusing on it. So Right, right. And and I think she's she's right that you know uh, self service actually I think initial impression of the self service immediately gives you uh, an impression that it solves something right it basically removes the friction and and the whole um, effort of communication between people and then makes it easier right that that's that's the goal of self service but then you know what what happens is that it the 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 team who is doing it team who is using it both and everybody basically all stakeholders does not realize how quickly it gets out of hand and that's where the whole problem starts so i think yeah she's completely right on 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 saying that but then you know i think we we also want to solve so i think we we need to draw a line and 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 do a balance so every time we are moving the bar higher on self-service it has to move with consideration of of all aspects 
not only to just enable them to do it but in a uh, but another enable them to do it in a in a governed way the in in a way that the company has a policies that's that has set right like anybody should not be able to go and then create thousand pipeline <laughs> right so it can choke the system it can like you know affect the existing pipeline all of that now this is like a um the so cloud kind of solves the problem but again it does not entirely solve the problem because you are now giving an and um, power to you know um to the users to basically directly use your company fund right so when the cloud bill comes you'll be surprised i mean we can talk about that entirely separately but you know these are all the problems that self service creates and then and that's where we need to take a step back and then then rethink about this and good that now we have this the whole paradigm of data mesh and you know that will help in in governing and making sure that it moves slowly and in a right direction so that people have an 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 a visibility on on the ownership the responsibility and what is you know they are really putting outside uh, of their team yeah i mean it, so much of what you said resonates especially the governed way about enabling people to understand what they're doing and and you know cloud bill i, I literally managed aws costs for uh, a public company for a while so i'm i'm very much in that that vein of let's have a reason for doing this and let's focus on on uh, not having that surprise bill right so I, I wanted to to go down kind of what has been your your journey so far in kind of heading towards actually doing this. You know, uh, you said that you've kind of got um, lineage and catalog quality classification or kind of things that you're still uh, trying to figure out. But let's talk about where you've kind of had some success. So could you kind of tell the story of of where you think you've really maybe not absolutely you've got the perfect solution but that you feel you're comfortable on it now and then we can transition into yeah sure i think we definitely i can i can share the journey i think this is a, a um, i have written a extensive blog about this uh, so this is a public information anyway um, but uh, br- even before that uh, brief of a journey i i started as a as a developer who works on the open source uh, since 2012 and then uh, i used to contribute to hive and uh since then you know the hadoop was a very very hot technology at the time um but you know i i want to interject one my one one of the one of the observation that i had at the time and 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 it it fortunately or unfortunately came to the realization is that you know when the technology is hot everybody tried to jump into it and make sense out of it or make i would say the use out of it even though they don't have a use of it right if you remember back then 5 years ago if your company is not using hadoop you are not cool right and you will you will probably have a hard time <clears throat> convincing um you know the venture capitalists to invest in your company as a futuristic or modern um fast forward today that's the same case for ai ml and web3 
right? So there is always that that edge where there is a latest trend, but the problem happens is when you when you wrongfully map that latest technology to the problems that you want to solve, and it doesn't end up solving because there is a usually a very high cost of adopting to the latest technology, right? So I remember, um, um, like my friend and I had a conversation at that time in 2012 or 13, um, and their in their company there was like a um, t- big table of like one terabyte, and they wanted to implement Hadoop on that. And I'm like, you don't <laughs> you don't really need Hadoop for that. You just you know the MySQL would be more than enough to run the queries and you know just do it. You don't have to really fancy go, uh, you know. Map produce for that. Um, so I think that 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 actually, I mean, as long as you have the have the budget for effort and and cost to 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 do that as part of research and development, and and you see a very well future use case of that, is fine. Um, but that that comes even today. So even today, what I see is the wrongful um, solution to the wrong problem, right? So I think we don't focus a lot on there. Um, and and that that has created this, a lot of opportunity for us to solve this. As, as a background, what you are now, coming back to what you asked about my own journey, um, this is what I have now practically realized this. Um, I worked on a lot of different uh, data movement systems. And, um, you know, we, it, it, I, I, we, we tried to solve some of the problem there and all of these experiences mostly coming out of there, like how people really uses it, how many, you know, uh, stakeholders are involved in there and how we, we, our goal was always to, you know, enable customers to do self-served requests to, you know, data movement. Um, we did end up creating a brand new platform um, and I, I think we, we have shared all aspect of how we have created that platform uh, on the PayPal blog. Um, but, you know, one thing that, that was good for us that, you know, it did achieve what we intended to achieve, um, you know, really empowered a lot of business use cases and, and uh, the whole PayPal cloud journey on the platform. And uh, yeah, I think we can, we can also share that, you know, um, we, we started on terabyte levels, um, like back in like 2018, we used to move data in terabytes. And today we move data in petabytes. So that's the journey on the data movement side. But as we, as I said that, you know, the solutions sometimes go too far where it becomes a problem by itself or it starts introducing the problems, right? So now we have a problem where we have moved too much data and people often find you know spend a lot of time in in finding which is the right data set and that's where all these other technology that you mentioned is is something on top of my mind that i actively work in and research about is is these technologies right the catalog lineage the classifications of the data sets the quality of the data sets all of these kind of collectively gives us um and enables the users to find the right data set. The, the literally the single most important aspect for me that I'm looking at is 
how can data scientists find data um, right away on the tip of the you know finger just like we have a google search for every other information how we can have the same thing uh, you know for data scientists or anybody for that matter to find the right data set well and, and we we originally started talking around um you know well before uh the even setting up the the conversation about data contracts and kind of where that is mm -hmm. i think that's a, a big challenge for a lot of folks and i think once you've made it so people can actually trust what the data is, because I mean, lineage is is important in certain aspects, but for a lot of consumers, it's not really important. It's only important in the fact that you need to, to uh, be able to trust it, right? And data quality, you do, I, I think you will always have to define data quality because quality means different things for different people, right? It can be yeah. that my my most important thing is that this is arriving within you know 100 milliseconds and so i i understand that i'm not going to have 99.999 you know five nines of accuracy or whatever and that um but somebody who's like okay this is for our regulatory reporting we need that accuracy level at that five nines yeah. kind of thing so I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about what you've learned from kind of what you've done with data contracts and then how can we start to apply the, what you've learned and what, where you think you, you've really uh, gotten to a good place about how we can start to look at those other uh, things and what are we trying to achieve with them? Again, you know, lineage is, is important for um, kind of the people who are creating additional data products to really know you know, what is my upstream and what, what can I actually do? What are the SLAs of the upstream? Things like that. But do consumers really need to know that and all that, that kind of fun stuff? So let's, let's start. I know that was a whole lot of questions. Let's start with the, the kind of data contract side and what you've learned from doing data contracts well. Yeah, so I, I consider the data contract as a, as a part of the overall uh, data mesh implementation or a beginning of it uh, that, that starts um, that starts making people realize about the responsibilities that they have about data. Um, but as you also said, right, I, I, and I also believe that, you know, your quality definition is different than mine. Like producers, even within consumers, every consumer definition of quality is different. Um, if not different, they care about different things. Right? Some cares about accuracy versus some cares about validity. And some cares about completeness and and even when you talk about validity they have a different definitions of what is valid for me versus what is valid for somebody else right so that 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 whole thing it get get really um you know amplified um and i, I feel it's it's hard to solve with uh, with the data contracts alone but it does play a very good role in in setting the boundaries and establish uh, certain rules in the game between producer and, and consumer at a very high level. How, how are those manifesting for you? Like there's been some conversations about consumer driven testing or, and consumer driven contracts. Is it that the producer just says, this is what I'm going to produce? Or is it that it's a one-to-one -one conversation and kind of that collaborative negotiation 
to be like, this is what I'll actually serve to you because I understand your needs, but that means I can relax my constraints in other ways. Like, how have you found that actually to work? I, I think these data contracts typically works nicely. I haven't seen, by the way, yeah, in my experience, I haven't seen this work very nicely because the environment I work in and then I deal with has has a too many players of and, and owners and, and stakeholders in that data entity. So you are you're representing too many different personas which has a different definitions of everything. So contract typically works very nicely when you have one-to-one mapping. You have a single con, con, you know producers and single producer or a similar uh, you know consumers and then you, there is a contract defined. The moment the contract breaks, you know where the problem lies whether it's on the producer side or on the consumer side, right? So it it works really nicely in that environment, but then we are talking about an environment where it's a whole graph of responsibilities and and definitions of, you know, how the data should look like. So I think in uh, rather than contract, I think I I do want to find a a next uh, word in this same direction, which can represent this, and I'm sure uh, you know we, it, we will come up with that in the in the in the in the paradigm of data mesh, where we we have um, a responsibility defined for publisher to publish the data in certain format, certain with a certain quality, with certain aspects, and then the you know certain distributions and everything. And then consumer will have their own definition. So it's like you know contract on your own self assuming that there is a contract on the other side. So it's a, you can think of this as a, as a convoluted, um, uh, you know, contracts built on top of each other. Yeah, I think the, that's interesting insight that it doesn't survive the real world because there may be multiple consumers, you know, you may have a one-to-one relationship between, or a one-to-one of one producing domain and one consuming domain. But within that, you know, do you have one specific person who is like forming the official bridge and saying, this is our actual literal contract. I I did talk to somebody on Reddit who said that like they actually for data contracts, there is a literal contract drawn up, right? With actual like SLAs and it's signed by both parties. and, And, you know, you can have that across legal entities for certain reasons, but even not legal entities. There's a literal paper written contract. Right. You you talk about you brought up an interesting point and thanks for that actually. So if you think about just the timeliness of data, for example, right? As an example, you will find a consumer who cares about the data being available within milliseconds. Right. If you take an example of like a customer activity on their platform for anybody's service platform. And as you want to see what just I did, you do want to immediately show them that these are the activity really, right? So there is a need for, uh, in this use case, there is a need for the consumer to have the data with a sub-second or sub-millisecond level latency, right? Depending on the nature of the, the seriousness of the use case. Um, but if you look at the other consumers who are, basically using trying to use the data for model building or training for daily behavioral activities and stuff like that they don't really care about data being available at a second level latency right 
What they care about is that I should have all the data before midnight today, right? And then I should be able to process that data in a most efficient way because I'm gonna be processing terabytes of data together. So in, in this scenario, you will see, uh, and this is where the, if you um, remember the Lambda architecture, which talks about, you know, using the streaming and then it, it get, got into the Kappa architecture where they say that, okay, no, 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 both streaming and batch data movement is kind of, you know, make, making the data available is, is together in the single platform. But before that, the Lambda was basically splitting that two pipeline, right? But regardless, the point was that you do have a business needs to uh, consume the data in streaming way as well as the batch way. And both of their contracts will be different. So from that point of view, if you are now putting that responsibility to producer to give that data in that fashion, how is, how is going how is producer is going to do that, right? Producer doesn't want to kind of now have a setup of entire data engineering team to do that. That's where this centralized service comes in that says that, okay, here is a tool, go and use it. Well, and there was an, a very interesting early webinar of around data mesh with, um, uh, from, I think it was Emily Gorsinski and somebody else from ThoughtWorks. It might've been Jamak, but I don't think it was Jamak. But anyway, um, she talked about like that exact use case that at a customer, they created two different data products. And one was, you know, the timeliness data product and one was the accuracy data product. And people were like, well, we shouldn't have to do the same work twice. And it's like, okay, but the timeliness one the quality threshold was lower. So it actually wasn't that expensive to just absolutely focus on, you know, just the performance, just how timely yeah. can we get this through? And that the accuracy was was okay when it was at, you know, you talk about like the uh, Kafka book by Gwen Shapira, um, where she talks about uh, exactly once right? Like how insanely difficult it is to do exactly once. It sounds like it's easy, but like defining exactly once and doing it, it's very, very difficult. So if you're trying to do that with sub millisecond, no, like the cost of doing that, it's going to be, you know, millions to maybe a billion depending on your use case. So like exactly what you're talking about, but people do get really frustrated if you have, if you're doing the same work twice, but it's for different use cases, but it's okay to do that if that's the right call. But evaluating when it's the right call, people want kind of a framework for this is versus this isn't. And it's like, eh, you just kind of have to feel it out. Right. So I wanted to kind of circle back to, we talked about kind of, you've seen that the data contracts work okay, but they kind of don't survive as much in the real world. Let's talk about kind of, what's causing that and that kind of cataloging and all these different things that are, are still real challenges where, um, you know, are you finding that one thing I'm seeing with cataloging is that we're getting to pretty good auto documentation, but auto documentation only tells you what the data is, not the information. And the information mm -hmm. is what matters. Like, what is this mm -hmm. actually about what is it trying to solve? What is it trying to achieve? Exactly what you've been talking. Right, about. right. So I'm, I'm. By the way, I'm. I'm really happy that the, that you know the the industry, the data domains has has now shifted the focus on this area of cataloging, which is often a, a you know um, 
does not get much attention um because nowadays every company has a petabyte level of data and it is it is becoming a pain point for not only uh, enterprise companies but also mid level companies so there is enough use cases for this for us to have a product data catalog product by itself right so that's where the cataloging uh started but i think the way it was started was what an what was as an auto discovery of the data sets and then usually i mean most of the time it was good enough for for people to kind of you know um yeah, assume certain uh things based on the column name or like a, some kind of a description or the table name right or uh, um so based on the naming convention people used to assume things but i think it has become a challenging now because you run out of the naming conventions and then the naming conventions are also not standardized across right because you know you're running the company for a decade or two decade now and then it keeps changing every other year depending upon who who works on that so all of these challenges is is not uh something solved by the discovery of you know the data sets itself but then you need a human input on top of it so that's where the governance comes in and and i think the the right now um yeah i mean there are a lot of catalog products in the market but you know the one that i focus on being part of the open source community is the one that is open sourced right so we'll talk about the open source only there are also proprietary ones but in the open source world the catalog product is is right now focused on this really base layer but then i i i'm happy that they are solidifying this base layer so that in future they can add more layers on top of it and add various governance so um when you when you say the people care about information um the catalog is also supposed to give you uh, the information and um you know exact description of why anyone would use this table and this is where i think all the other aspect of the data platforms comes in uh, all the other data platform comes in by the way uh the data quality for example the data lineage for example all of these comes into picture when somebody is trying to filter down a single entity out of a ocean of the entities of millions of entities uh, or millions of datasets you do want to uh, kind of find out where it is coming from really right after five or 10 different hops you see the final table in 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 an article platform but you do want to make sure that it is it is not somebody just created somewhere but it is actually has has its own roots the roots of the dataset is actually linked to the original site and sor right so that's where the lineage is really really important and then at the same time when you use that dataset you do want to make sure that the quality of data set is it up to the mark at least so that you you can consider it for a production use right things like that and all of these activity typically is done manually today if you look at this it's not that we don't do this it's all of this are done over emails it will take months for you to make sure that yes as a team or as a collectively between five different teams we agree that this is the right entity and the whole 
challenge, if you say, or the problem, if you say, for the catalog systems is to basically reduce this time from months to days and then hours eventually, right? And one thing that I'm seeing is kind of this issue of what I'm calling trapped metadata, right? Where when we're we're looking at these different solutions that are helping us to uh, assess data quality or, you know, data lineage or things like that, that they're all kind of trapped in the same, um, in, in one-off systems, right? If you're, and so there isn't that sharing and to, you know, I, I say multiple panes of glass is a major pain in the ass, right? If you have to go and say, I'm going to learn about this data product and I have to go into 10 different systems to figure out, does it meet my actual needs? Like that's a huge, huge burden exactly on what you said. So much of this is manual understanding by the consumer. And if we want to democratize data access, if we want to, you know, really think about other people having access to data than than really, really experts, that's not acceptable. So we need to get there. But kind of what you're you're saying is I think we're we're progressing towards it. But like and and things like the open metadata standard and things like that are great. Um, if we can actually get vendors to adhere to it in a certain way where their metadata isn't trapped in their system or it's not trapped in such a way that it's very, very difficult to extract and combine with other solutions. Because again, I don't care where it lives. I don't care where this information is. People can consume it in different places. They love the data catalog or they love the lineage tool or they love that. We should have the same information in a lot of these places so that way, you know, it, it can cause deduplication of or duplication of, of the data, but the information, the metadata. But I think we want to make it so that consumers can really understand without having to to become a data investigator, <laughs> that they can be a data consumer only. You know, I, I can I can um, without sharing much, uh, I can tell you that this is a big problem for a proprietary catalog systems that they, they want to kind of, you know, become a black box and then and the holder of this metadata and then only allow use of this metadata in a certain way. And this is why I love the open source community who is trying to drive the solution towards uh, a standard where it is truly a, a freely accessible and integratable metadata for application and and you know we are I think we are in the first phase but then you know we will see a lot more applications are going to be empowered by metadata so nobody has to kind of redo this discovery within their applications right so this is going to be I feel in a couple of years just you know it will be taken as a granted that metadata is just there for any applications to then integrate and get the latest information it's just a matter of time but then at the same time, we are we also needs to continuously add these layers of information, whether it's a it's a you know just a static metadata information, or whether it's a governance flows on top of it, or whether it's a runtime metadata where my application can just query that okay, what is the latest uh, freshness of this data set? You know, so every moment system is integrated as well that you know tells that central metadata that oh, I've just moved this data at 10 o'clock so everything up is up to date up to 10 o'clock 
things like that. So that interaction, as an as as much as we make it programmable, we will be able to empower all these data applications uh, in a much better way. And then you know we will automatically see uh, the other metrics improved, right? Whether it's a it's a overall time to market or whether it's a quality or you know a better detection of issues, all of these will be driven nicely. Uh, with programmable, I think because the moment we do everything programmatically, there is an opportunity to at least make it better, right? So uh, we don't have a bottleneck there, I feel. But what what you um, mentioned about the <clears throat> the the accessible and standard catalog, um, yeah, that that is that is very much needed, and and you know I'm glad that the open source is driving towards that. Yeah, I I. I... You know, even when you see a company like Atlin is not open source, but Atlin at least has open metadata within their, um, not not the open metadata standard, but they have, you know, open as their core of other systems can access this in an easy way. You know, they'll, you know, every system will ingest, you know, every vendor wants to ingest data from everyone else, but they don't want to allow the ingestion from themselves. And if you don't have standards, then you have to have custom, um, you know, uh, integrations between each one that that transform it in certain ways, and it just it it's a nightmare. But um, you know, every vendor wants to lock you in, and I think we'll see more and more people move away from those vendors that are locking them in that, that aren't enabling them to to do that. Like you know, when I'm in the data catalog, I should be able to. Um, you know, get my health check on the data product, right? Like I'm looking to consume from this right now. Um, boom, I want to see what are my SLAs and it's got like my contract, you know, or agreed upon or whatever SLAs. And it's like, okay, I'm going to dig into the timeliness or, you know, oh, I want to go upstream and look, you know, this uh, data product is saying that it, it's refreshed every four hours or it's guaranteed within four hours. But I look and one of the the things that's upstream is only refreshed every day. So obviously it can't be, you know, timeliness of four hours. We want that to be programmatic, but like I want that information there so that I can make better decisions and that I, I if right. I want to, I, I'm starting to, to, to talk about even like thinking about knowledge graph and sharing and like that type of, of information flow. Like mm-hmm. everybody should have a show and tell about, their data products, you know, if it's like at the data asset level where it's kind of smaller, but if you've got a full data set, you should have a show and tell that's a little video that people can click through. And, you know, I don't know if it's a, you know, internal video platform only, or if it goes out to private YouTube or whatever, but like, boom, like all of those things, it's just, we need to make this so that people can leverage data and trust data, right? Like, data trustability, it's not just like, is this accurate or whatever? It's like, I need to understand what it is and how I can use it and what it's supposed to be. And so I might have a different use for it than is like the kind of prescribed upon use, but like, I need to be able to trust it to get <laughs> to even considering that. Right, right. Yeah. So I think the, the it, it is going to be a long journey, I think. And the main there are two things here is one is I think the whole the whole ecosystem around catalog is 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 trying to reduce the time it takes 
to search and and know the data uh but the trust is something you know will take its own time to build and then but it's also fragile right the moment you don't find something you immediately start doubting the system that oh this is not good enough for me things like that and you will kind of rely on your own mechanisms to find and and you know talk to people to find the trust but yeah it's it's going to be a long journey until it's proven uh but i think we are well on that path i've talked to a couple of people that come from a library sciences background and i've started to to think about kind of a data concierge or a data sherpa or something like that of somebody that is there you know that you're you're trying to make it so that people can self-serve in that way, but self-serve in a um, actually useful way, not just I can find certain things and I don't really know what they are, but that you've got that kind of knowledge worker that is specific to helping people to go and, and answer those questions. So it isn't every single person has to learn how to do all of that, uh, you know, checking through lineage and, and really understanding the SLAs and doing that. You know, you want people to get to a certain degree, but it's kind of like governance. Right. You don't want every every domain to have to fully understand GDPR. Right. They want to say, OK, we think we got it and go to somebody and go, did we get it? And then they they do like their kind of audit of, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you empower the teams to get 80, 90 percent of the way there. What do you think about that person in the middle? I know it's it's kind of horrific to think about for technology people. But at the same point, it's like, yeah, I think I see this as an onboarding. Right. When you onboard onto any new company, they have their own way and mechanisms and toolings um, that you will have to get familiar in order to do your job, right? So similarly, when we are talking about data engineer and data scientist, half of the job is to is to basically understand some of these aspects of data, but not, of course, not necessarily down to the detail level where they can write a research paper around GDPR and, and suggest improvements on that, right? But, you know, it's more of like, explain like I'm five, right? What is GDPR, right? It's like, right, to be forgotten. And, and uh, some simple terms to explain what it is. But I, I believe in, I, I lately started believing in this and then, and, and we can, uh, I can touch upon the other, other um, area that I, I'm usually focused on nowadays is, is a cost. What if we say that the cost is not something that engineer has to worry about, and then you know, um, especially in this um, context of cloud, then I think we are we are we are probably missing the point. Um, it's just like saying that every person or every data engineer does not need to know about what that data is and where it is being used, right? Because I think there is a va- certain value in. In, in learning those aspects so that there is always a context. So I think every time programmer is coding and then thinking about solution, there are a lot of context and, and you know, back of the mind things that is going on. And if you are aware of certain things, you will consider that angle also while you're thinking about solutions. If you are talking about a junior engineer who has just started and then their their whole job is to basically codify the solution, yeah, I can agree that maybe not. They may not need to be aware of all of this in too much detail, but the, at least the person who is in charge and, and leading the team 
and and creating a solutions people are at architect level all of them has to i feel be familiar about all of this aspect of what is that data what is the domains you know what is the cost associated with it um and all of that um I, I, sorry i'm just talking too much about cost probably but you know that that is a that is a that is a very big focus area for me to 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 kind of you know uh, how do we do things in in an efficient cost efficient way right i can i mean we can we can always throw kubernetes cluster and then the spark cluster to do a thing but you know is that a cost efficient right to do the job I talk about return on investment, not just return, right? Exactly what you're right. talking about is right. what does what this get us for what we're investing in it? And that investment could be, you know, I had somebody when I managed AWS costs who's, who came to me and said, hey, I've got this thing. It's going to take an M4XL for me to do this. And um, but I think with about you know, two weeks of work, I could get it down to doing an M4 large. So I can cut it in 50% of the cost. I said, okay, how many of these things are you running? Are you, are you going to be running like a thousand or whatever? And he's like, no, I, I needed to run on one. And I went, I just laughed at him. I just said, okay, like, I really appreciate you coming to me. But I think like, I can't remember the exact cost, but it was like $500 versus $250 for a year of running this. And I said, I really appreciate you thinking about this and coming to me, but it is absolutely not worth any of our time for you to, to spend any more time thinking about this, right? Because this is the, the difference, but I really appreciate you thinking about it and coming to me and that you didn't just go do the work either, right? That you came to me and said like, here's going to be my investment. What's my return? And it's like a saving of $250 a year for eight weeks of engineer time. Yeah. No. No, I, I can, you know, I can talk about this all day, actually. But, you know, I want to summarize one one experience that I, what I feel um, is, is going wrong with this, uh, the way we are thinking is, is that when, when the company moves to cloud, right, they, they literally try to do a one-to-one mapping of what they were doing on-prem. And there are reasons for that, by the way. I did very well agree and, and understand those reasons that, you know, when you are in the journey of migrations, you don't have a time and luxury of, uh, you know, luxury of time and effort, both to recreate uh, products and re-architect them in order to, you know, uh, better fit and make it suitable to cloud. I, I, I definitely get that. Um, but, you know, it, uh, we often lose the focus um, that, you know, um, it, 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 at some point it didn't need, it need to be adjusting to the cloud and then it needs to work in the in the way the cloud works right and if you're not careful it's not that it the service won't work service will work but the cost of running that service will be so much higher and then you will have so much different kind of pressure to kind of either you know shut down the service or consolidate whatever right i mean there, there's a whole kind of pressures but i feel this is where i feel that what you touch upon earlier right that do the data engineer need to know about data? I'm, 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 I'm certain that yes, we 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 should have that culture, because the same thing when we talk about cost, I think people should be. I, I think the 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 engineering team right should be aware of this dimension of the cost and then the architecture in cloud, so that the the, the thinking and the 
the consideration of the cost is is ingrained into the engineers engineering culture right and engineering thought process um and you know it it really becomes powerful when the ground level engineers start thinking about cost that means you, your company is running at the best uh, cost possible you know <laughs> instead of you know um somebody as a separate department just making um you know decision about how we should do things so if if we i and, and that culture is required i think uh, sooner or later people do realize that this is required right so it happens over a period of a year or two or three uh, my point is that the sooner it happens it's better right so that yeah, now you are thinking about you know every single hour you use the the kubernetes or data processor you know you are going to pay the cost for that so the way you design your solution whether you want to spin up the new cluster every time or whether you want to reuse some of the existing one right all of this all of this makes difference i totally agree and and you know you're you're singing my song cuz I, I i literally focused on that for you know a year and a half of just being uh cognizant of cost and there's certain times when it, you don't have to care and there's certain times when you do so but well so uh jay this has been a, a phenomenal conversation i really appreciate the time is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to cover or any way you you like to kind of wrap up the conversation in general uh i think i i, I think what what i can um say in the end is that you know all of these things we talk about right i think is for a reason is is not only because we like certain technologies and then you know we want to do cool stuff and then we want to kind of visualize the data in a graph way all of that I said, of of course there is there is a cool aspect of it but it has to have a have a a a solid purpose and and um an ability to solve a real business problem right if it is not helping reducing the time for your data scientist then it's useless i would say right in that angle in that context right so um it's like you have a catalog system but then it only covers 90% of the data stores that you have in a company right that is not useful so ultimately um, um all of these um data products and services collectively has to empower uh the folks in the company and it's not only data scientists but you know program managers and, and leaders and everybody who wants to look around things um has to directly get converted into um you know some kind of a benefit not necessarily of course as a cost but eventually it gets into cost but um it has to improve a lot of these metrics of time to find time to trust uh, bringing that trust time to use all of that um so that it basically expedites the whole uh you know velocity of the company and and delivery yeah i i feel the same i i say intentionality a lot a lot of people give me some crap for saying that as much as i do but uh i think exactly what you're talking about and it's the same thing with data mesh data mesh is designed if centralization is your bottleneck if centralization isn't the the issue data mesh isn't the right solution for you right like if if that centralization isn't causing the, those issues where where are you going actually so you know <laughs> i i'm actually working on a, a blog i don't know when i will release but the title of the blog and you will get it what i mean by that is the title of the blog is that data mesh can quickly become data mess yeah 
very much right? very much because there is so much things in between what where we are today and where data mesh will be and there are there's so many gaps to fill in between and and we will be there it will be good but you know we there is no toolings and and services today available that can make you switch tomorrow into the data mesh right so i think every company is going through the journey of realizing and materializing the data mesh and we'll see a lot of products coming out of it. It's bleeding edge. So bleeding means you're going to get cut, right? So, <laughs> um, well, uh, Jay, this has been so, so great. Um, thank you so much for, for spending the time. If people want to follow up with you about anything we've, we've talked about or other topics, like where do you want people following up with you? What do you want them following up about? Sure. Yeah, I think would love to talk about anything around the data catalog, data lineage, data quality specifically, um, and anything around around those uh, movement for sure. Right. Uh, feel free to reach me out on LinkedIn. Um, my my email address. This is why I kept it short. Jason at Apache org. Feel free to email. Uh, you know, we should anything around data. It's it's a good conversation to have. So uh, happy to help and and you know understand and learn. Again, thank you so much for your time today, and, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Scott. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Jay Sen, a data product domain expert and open source committer. You can find links to Jay's LinkedIn as well as a few Medium posts in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest, you know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.